Hey, thanks for checking out this week's message. We hope you're blessed by the Word of God. For more information on River of Life, you can check out our website, rolmt.com, or download our app. Just search R-O-L-M-T in your app store. Thanks. Man, it's a good day to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Man, would you open your Bible, Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. Um, I'm not Pastor Jason, and that's because the Tons are on vacation. So uh, yeah, give, give a shout out for the Tons on vacation. Uh, be praying they have a great time and that, that it's relaxing. Uh, they'll be here that next week. Pastor Jason will continue the perspective series. Um, but for now, you're stuck with me, all right? All right. So I'm going to continue in the perspective series myself. So um, we are going to, uh, title of my message today is Blood Talks. That means nothing to you guys until, and it will in a second here, I promise you. Uh, let's read through our passage. Okay, Hebrews 12, verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness and gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn. That's us. Whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous, made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you. I thank you for the word that you've given me today. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open to receive it, Lord, that, uh, that he who has, an, has ears to hear would hear the word of the Lord today. Lord God, I pray that we would open ourselves up and just receive what you have to give. Lord, I pray that I would get out of the way and that you would uh, just speak your truth, Lord God, uh, through me by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So title my message, Blood Talks. In our scripture here in Hebrews, we have two mountains that are being described. In many of your Bibles, the, the sec, this section of scripture will be called the mountain of fear and the mountain of joy. And the writer, he, he describes these two mountains. The first mountain, uh, the people are there and they're standing at a distance. And the mountain it, it has the manifest presence of God that's resting on the mountain. And there's thunder and lightning and a trumpet blast is blaring the people are afraid. They're standing back at a distance. And as they do, a loud voice is speaking out. And it's saying, it's, it's, it's speaking out commandments saying that if anyone comes and touches this mountain, then they will die. Even if an animal touches the mountain, they will die. The people are terrified. Did I mention the whole mountain's on fire? Not a pretty sight. The word that in uh, the original language that it uses for, um, for fear 
here when it says that they were filled, or that Moses was filled with fear. It's the word ekphobos. That word is where we get, get our term phobia from. We're not talking about a reverence like we sometimes read about in scripture. We're not talking about awe of God like we sometimes read in scripture. We're talking about fear, trembling, terror. They are afraid of the presence of God. And because they are afraid of the presence of God, they stand back at a distance. They put space in between themselves and the presence of God. But then he describes a different mountain. He describes the mountain of joy. And this is the mountain that he says we stand before. Aren't you glad? This mountain, another mountain right there, manifest presence of God rests on this mountain. And there are thousands and thousands of angels all around the throne of God. And, and we're there worshiping with the angels and, and the, uh, the people who went before us, those who died and were perfected and brought into heaven. They're there too. Isn't it a blessing knowing that when someone passes away in our life, that when they know the hope of Jesus, that we know that one day we'll be rejoicing before the throne with them? Amen. Amen. They're there too. We're all there gathered, not in fear, but we're gathered in a joyful assembly and we're worshiping God. Worshiping before the judge of all the ages. Worshiping before Jesus, the mediator of our covenant. Worshiping before the sprinkled blood of Christ that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, when I was reading this passage and I was studying for this message today, I, I read this passage and that line about the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, it popped off the, 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 the page to me. I was like, man, there's something about that that we need to, to dig into. Because if the blood of Christ is speaking a better word than the blood of Abel, it begs the question, what is the blood of Abel speaking? And so today we're going to dig into some scripture and we're going to find out what the blood of Abel is saying. And so in order to do that, we've got to jump back in our Bible to Genesis chapter 4. verse. Uh, actually, we're going to go from Genesis chapter 4, verse 3 to verse 16. Verse 3 to verse 16. We're going to talk about the story of Cain and Abel. The story of Cain and Abel represents an age-old struggle in the church. It's something that's existed for a very long time. It's the struggle between sacrifice versus obedience. Sacrifice or obedience. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it with King Saul in the story where he, he's waiting on Samuel to come and offer sacrifices, but he gets impatient. And so he starts to offer these sacrifices himself. And Samuel comes and he rebukes King Saul. He says, you're not supposed to do that. Why did you do that? And Saul's like, well, they had to be done, so I just did them. And Samuel says, God would rather have obedience rather than sacrifice. And what he's, what he's saying here is, is not that God doesn't want your sacrifice. That he doesn't want your worship, right? We would view sacrifice as a form of worship. What he's saying is, if you're going to give him a sacrifice or you're going to be obedient, he'd rather you be obedient. We see it later on kind of come out a little bit more of a way that we can understand in, in the story of the Pharisees and Jesus. 
The Pharisees are there and, and they are offering, they're, by all means, by all man, standards of man, they are holy people. But then Jesus shows up and he says, hey, you're offering all these sacrifices to God. God doesn't really want them because the way that you're offering them isn't pleasing to him. You're doing it out of a religious obligation and, and it doesn't really mean anything. God would rather have you be obedient to his word. And you've taken a relational covenant and you've made it a religious covenant. Sacrifice versus obedience. And honestly, if we look around in the church today, we see it. We see people trying to earn their salvation by practicing religious sacraments, by coming to church. You know, maybe they come to church twice a month. Maybe they write a tithe check. And they think that that, that means they don't have to actually let the word of God invade their life. They don't actually have to change. They don't have to actually have to have a relationship with God because they give him a little sacrifice on the weekend. I'm getting deep today. This all started in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were the first and second born sons of Adam. Now Adam, when he was created by God, was, get, was told by, by God, he said, you have to name all of the animals, but everything on earth, all the plants, all the vegetables, all the fruits, except for that one tree, and uh, all the animals, they're all there for your enjoyment. And you can eat and drink and be merry, and you can do everything that you want to do. And you can do it for enjoyment. But then something happens, the fall of man, man sins. And suddenly things change. Before the fall of man, uh, Adam had full access to the provision of God. But after the fall, fall of man, his access became limited. And we read that in, in Genesis uh, 3.17. I didn't put this up there, but just take my word for it or look it up in your Bible later. It says, God told Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. So now, in order to eat, instead of being able to just eat for enjoyment, now Adam has to work to eat. Now he has to eat in order to survive. So Adam is given basically two new jobs. Before, his job was name the, name the animals. No, that's an easy job, just saying. I could have named animals. But afterwards, now he has to work the ground and, and, and plant seeds and grow fruit and grow vegetables and grow plants. And he has to raise up animals. He has to work for his food. Man, I'm in one foul swoop here. Adam got rid of eating for enjoyment and he also brought sin into the world. I mean, this guy's the worst. <laughs> so he gets these two new jobs and he has to... Uh, to work the ground, and he has to, to shepherd the animal, the beast of the field. And it works out because he has two children, Cain and Abel, two sons. And so he gives these, these two sons his jobs, which is pretty convenient for Adam. He, one of them, Cain, he makes him uh, the farmer, essentially. He's the one that tills the ground, tills the earth, and, and out from it, he yields crops. The other one is, is Abel, and Abel becomes the shepherd of the field. And so we jump into our story in verse three. 
In the course of time, Cain brought some fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering, he did not look with, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. But you must rule over it. So somewhere between the fall of man and Adam and Eve having uh, children, raising their children, they start this practice of sacrificing um, their crops and their animals to the Lord. And it says that in the course of time, probably meaning on a Sabbath, that Cain and Abel, the boys, take their sacrifices and, and present them before the Lord. And Cain goes first. He brings some fruit of the field that he has, and he lays them before God. And, he ta- and, 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 you know, it is what it is. Then Abel comes. Abel brings the firstborn of his flock. And he prevents, presents it before God, and God's so blessed by it. And he looks with favor on Abel's sacrifice, but on Cain, he doesn't. Now, I've heard a lot of different preachers talk about why God didn't look um, on Cain with favor after his sacrifice. I heard one preacher one time say that it was because it was fruit, and fruit reminded God of how sin came into the world. And let me just tell you, that's complete baloney. It's ridiculous. Um, I don't like to call preachers out, but when you're wrong, you're wrong. So... Uh, especially because the scripture tells us exactly why it was. In fact, it says that, that uh, God would have looked favorably on his sacrifice if he would have done what was right. See, scripture tells us all about the worship that, God's, that God deems as acceptable, right? We see over and over again that God just wants your whole heart. Seek me and you will find me when you, seek, when you search for me with your whole heart. We see in scripture over and over again, we see that that God desires us to bring the full offering before him. We don't need to bring up the story of Ananias and Sapphira, right? God desires the full thing. See, Cain brought a half-hearted worship before God. Cain gave God the leftovers. Abel gave the firstborn of his flock. Cain made a, uh, uh, gave those leftovers out of an obligation to make a sacrifice. But Abel gave out of his love for God, out of his relationship with God. Cain made a religious sacrifice. Abel made a relational sacrifice. And God shows favor to Abel. And Cain is like, man, my goody two-shoes brother showed me up before God. And he's all upset and he's mad. And God warns him, hey, man, don't sit in that, in that anger. And don't continue to do what's wrong because sin's crouching at your door and it desires to rule over you. But Cain doesn't listen. Cain goes and he lures his brother out to a field and he kills him. We jump back into our story, verse nine. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Man, Cain giving some sass to God right there. He's lucky he didn't get the belt. <laughs> the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. 
Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain is confronted by God and he lies. He does what his parents did. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and God goes looking for them, but they know they're naked. They know that they ate from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now they know they're naked. And so they hide themselves from God. Here Cain is hiding his sin from God. And God's response is bone chilling to me. Listen, he says. I imagine, just paint for yourself that picture. The voice of God calling down from heaven. Listen. And Cain getting quiet. And Cain wondering, have I been found out? Does he know what I did? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Blood talks. Our passage in Hebrews 12, it highlights a contrast between the blood of Christ and the word that it speaks and the blood of Abel and the word that it speaks. They're both talking and they're both talking about us to God. But what are they saying? Well, the blood of Abel was an acknowledgement of Cain's sin. It was the evidence that Cain had sinned. It would be like if I had taken a plate of chocolate donuts and I set them on my counter and I told my son Archer and said, hey, listen, you are not allowed to touch these chocolate donuts. Those are mine. You are not allowed to touch them. And if you do touch them, you're going to be in big trouble. And I walk away and I go and I, you know, turn my back and I come back and I see this. <laughs> Did I mention that the story is not hypothetical? <laughs> now, first off, if I saw that face, I'm not doing anything because that's so stinking cute, man. But God's a better father than me. See, if I came back and I saw the chocolate on my son's face, I could say, listen, the chocolate from the donut is crying out to me from your face. <laughs> it's the evidence that something had taken place, that a sin had occurred. The blood of Abel cried out from the earth and told God of the terrible sin that Cain had committed. And the result of that sin, like the result of all sin, is separation from God. And we see that. We see that in the curse that comes over Cain. God, uh, Cain was separated from God in three ways. And I believe that when we live a life ruled by sin, when we choose that life like Cain did, remember God gave him a warning. Cain messed up and God said, listen, if you continue to do what's wrong, sin's crouching at your, at your door. It desires to have you. You have to rule over it. Cain doesn't listen. He turns into sin. And if we do that same thing, if we turn into sin, then we are at risk of, this, of being separated from God in the same three ways that Cain was. And so let's take a look at those. First way that he's separated was from God's presence. 
Abel's blood demanded that separation from God's presence. He went, in verse 16, it says, he left the Lord's presence and he went and he lived in the land of Nod. Which is a really cool name, the land of Nod. But it's not actually talking about a physical place. The word Nod is, is the root for the, the Hebrew uh, um, vowel that means to wander. And so what it's saying is it's kind of highlighting his, his punishment. He went to live in a land of wandering. He went and he became a wanderer. And can I tell you that we too, when we choose to live in a life ruled by sin, we wander from the presence of God. We're separated and we, from, from that presence and, and, and we become a wanderer. But unlike Cain, where we're wandering a physical place, it's a spiritual wandering that we go through. I think of the old hymn, Come Thou Found. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt of your flesh just desiring to leave the presence of God, desiring to leave the God that you love, being tempted to walk into that sinful life, to turn into sin like Cain did? We are sinful people, and like Cain, our sin drives us out of the presence of God and into a spiritual state of wandering. And in that spiritual state of wandering, we will have left our home. We will have left the place where we felt comfortable, where we felt peace, and where we were happiest. Where we could grow and exist. We wandered away from it because of our sin. And we go off looking for a place where we can find that place where our soul feels at home. But the problem is, when we leave the presence of God, we are leaving the place that we are designed to exist in. If you took a cactus or like a desert plant and, and you, I don't, first off, I don't know a ton about agriculture. So if I'm wrong on this, you know, just, and tell me after service, okay? Okay, because this, this, my illustration needs this, so... <laughs> I took a desert plant like a cactus and I went up on the mountain and I planted it at the top of the mountain. It would die, right? Why? Because the cactus was designed to live and grow and thrive in the desert. The desert is the ecosystem that it was designed to thrive in. And so if I took that cactus out of the ecosystem that it was designed to thrive in, that has all of the elements, the, the, the water, the lack of water, the sun, the lack of sun, the temperature, if I took it out of that ecosystem and all of the elements that it needs to survive and to, be, and to exist in the way that it was created to exist, if I took it out of that and I went and I placed it on the top of a mountain, it would die, or at the very least, it would start to adapt and to change, and it, wouldn't, it would no longer be what it was designed to be. Church, when I look out around us, and I see hurt and pain and death, 
when I look out and I see a world that is constantly changing and constantly drifting and wandering farther and farther and farther away from the identity of Christ and the identity of God and the image of God for which it was created in. You can take that and you can say, hey, it's, it's, uh, it's the left's fault. It's the right's fault. You can blame it on a political candidate. You can blame it on anything. It's the school's fault. Church, mankind is existing in an ecosystem it wasn't designed to exist in. Mankind was designed to exist in the presence of God, but sin has separated us from the place that we were designed to thrive in. And so we have drifted farther and farther and farther away from that place. We have wandered farther and farther away. And now the world's full of death and pain. And it doesn't look anything like the image that it was created in. The only place that humanity can flourish in is the presence of God. But our sin, humanity's sin, has separated us from his presence. Why? Because the blood of Abel is speaking a word. The blood of Abel is demanding separation. The blood of Abel, the evidence of our sin, it demands separation from God. It expelled Cain from God's presence. It disqualified him from his place in the family of God. And it spoke condemnation over him. And church, can I tell you, it speaks condemnation over you and me too. Second thing he was or that he was uh, separated from, second way he was separated from God was God's rest. He wasn't just to be a wanderer, he was to be a restless wanderer. Now we're not talking about his inability to take a nap. We're, talking, we're not talking about bodily rest, we're talking about soul rest. Uh, and we, we, we see that type of rest in Matthew 11, when, and this is Jesus talking. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Not for your body. You will find rest for your soul. So what is soul rest? Well, when I think of soul rest, I immediately think of Psalm 23. So I want to read that, read that to you here. It says, a Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down. In Actually, you know what I'm going to do? I haven't done this. We haven't really done this a bunch since I was in Bible college. But uh, my pastor in Bible college used to make us all read scripture together. Let's do that right now. Would you stand up with me? We're going to read this scripture. It should be up there. Remind me of Dr. Denbo. All right, Psalm 23, Psalm of David. Here we go. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil, my cup 
overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. First part of this passage, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by still waters. What's he describing? Rest. He restores my soul. He's describing soul rest. But then when we, we see what soul rest is and what it, what it becomes when it's applied. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So when applied, soul rest is peace. When applied, soul rest is peace. And as we look at what was taken from Cain, that's what we see. His peace was taken. Cain uh, gets this punishment from God and scripture says that Cain says, it's too much for me to bear. Someone's gonna come and they're gonna find me and they're gonna kill me. And God says, don't worry about it. I'm gonna mark you with a seal. I'm gonna mark you with a seal and no one is gonna hurt you. You will be protected all the days of your life. God gives this amazing promise to Cain. And Cain goes out from there and he becomes this restless wanderer and, and, and he's, he's wandering around. And then eventually Cain starts to build himself a city. Now, why does he build himself a city? Protection. This is the first city that is ever built in the history of humanity. The first city ever built. No one ever has thought before to build a city for themselves, to protect themselves. Why? Because Cain is the first person who's had his peace taken from him. And even though he had the promise of God that you will be protected, without the peace of God, we cannot trust in his word. And so Cain starts to build himself a city to protect himself from anybody that's going to come and kill him. He's been removed from God's rest. He no longer has the peace of God. And church, that's a mark of a life lived in sin. Can I tell you that we do the same thing when we're separated from God's rest? When we remove, our sin removes us and puts, puts a gap between us, between us and the soul rest of God, between us and the peace of God. We know all the promises that God gives us, that he'll never leave us or forsake us, that he will provide for us, that he will protect us, that he will heal us. All of these things. But then we think, but what if God doesn't come through? We start to hedge our bets, right? We put our faith in the stock market. We put our faith in political figures. We put our faith in, in, in political parties. We put our faith in all of these different man-made things. We build ourselves a city to protect ourselves just in case God doesn't come through on his promise. But church, if that is our mindset, can I tell you that that is a result of a life lived in sin? Because when we have the peace of God, we can fully trust in him and his word. Now, 
don't go like pulling all your money out of your IRA or anything like that. I'm not saying that. You invest wisely. I'm just saying if, if your peace comes from your 401k and doesn't come from Jesus, then. You ever seen the thing, you might be a redneck? <laughs> you might be a sinner. All right. All right. The third thing that Cain is separated from is God's purpose. When we let sin rule over us, we become separated from our purpose. And Cain was a farmer. That was an identity. That was a job that was given to him by his father. And that was given to his father by God. It was who he was. Remember, like, not a whole bunch of people on the earth at this point. So he's farmer guy. That's like, that's who he is. That's what he did. But then his punishment comes down. And when the eight bloods, or Abel's blood cries out, it says that Cain separated from that identity and, and from his purpose. God says that you will work the ground, but no matter how hard you work, it will not yield its crop to you third thing that's taken from him that he's separated from, from is, is his identity in God. He's not the person he was meant to be. We talk a lot about God dreams in this church. God-sized dreams. And God has those dreams for you. I promise you. He has those dreams for you. But you can work all you want at trying to make that dream come to fruition. You can struggle and you can fight and you can work hard and you can toil the earth and do what you need to do. But if you're living a life of sin, it's all for loss because God's dream will never grow. It will never come about because your sin has separated you from your purpose. Your sin has separated you from what God has intended for your life. I was talking to someone a while back and, and they were asking the question that if, you know, if we run from God most of our life and then we, we end up giving our life to Jesus, um, then that was all part of God's plan, right? Like, like he knew that we were going to be saved at this, at this moment. We didn't miss out on anything that God had for us. And man, that sounds great, but it's just not true. When we run from God, we do miss out. Now, I don't say this to be condemning on any of us. Because when we, come, we can run from God and then bring our life to him, and he can take that broken mess and he can make it beautiful, but that doesn't mean that you, missed out, that you didn't miss out on something in between. Scripture says that his plans for you started in the womb. And so as you run, the longer that you run from Christ, the longer that you run from God and you live in sin, you're separated from that purpose that he has for you. And we love Jeremiah 29, 11. We love that verse. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, Right? But those plans, only, it only works 
if we're walking in his will, if we're walking not a life of sin. If you have a God dream and you want to see it come to fruition, start by watching what you're doing with your life. Start by taking an inward look to see if you've turned towards sin like Cain. And you may say, hey, listen, that's all great, Pastor Seth. I have, have, uh, I, I hear what you're saying, but Cain was a murderer. It was the murder that kept him or that separated him from God, right? But I want to argue today that, that I don't think it was the murder. God gave Cain a warning. If you do what's wrong, Sin is crouching at your, at your door and it desires to have you. You have to rule over it. God gave Cain a warning. He told him what it was. But Cain turned into sin anyway. So it didn't matter if it was murder or if it was a half-hearted sacrifice again. Sin is sin. So maybe you haven't murdered. But have you offered half-hearted worship like he did? I'm guilty of that. Have you tried to earn your spot in the kingdom by working really hard and thinking that, that, that uh, fulfilling some religious obligations and thinking that that secures your place in heaven? How many of you have lied how many of you have cheated? How many of you have stolen? How many of you have lusted? How many have placed it something in a higher priority than God? Because it's all sin. And sin separates us from God. Our sin demands our separation. The blood of Abel demands separation between God and man. Because sin cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. So the blood of Abel, our sin, demands we be separated. but the blood of Christ is speaking a better word. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The blood of Christ is speaking a better word. And the blood of Abel is crying out saying, we are a sinner. It's condemning us. It's saying there must be separation. It's demanding that separation. But the blood of Jesus is speaking a better word and the blood of Jesus is saying, you no longer have to be separated. You have access. You don't have to stand before the mountain of fear anymore. You don't have to stand at a distance anymore. You have access to the mountain of joy. You have access to God's presence. Access to his presence. We see it in Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Access to God's rest. We already read Matthew 20, 11, 28. Access to God's purpose, Ephesians 2, 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We have access to a new identity, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We have access to new citizenship, Philippians 3, 20. We have access to new joy, 1 Peter 1, 8. Access to new hope, 1 Peter 1, 3. Access to forgiveness, Hebrews 8, 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. We have access to holiness, Hebrews 10, 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. 
and we have access to life. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Come on, somebody give him praise today. We're standing before a mountain, but it's a new mountain. It's not the mountain of fear. But here's the deal. It's, it, it's a new mountain, but it's the same God. In the picture that Hebrews paints of the two mountains, the mountain of fear and the mountain of joy, one is a mountain where the manifest presence of God is resting on that mountain. And there's trumpets blowing. And in, in the second picture, we see a mountain and the manifest presence is resting on this mountain and there's trumpets blowing. The difference isn't between the two mountains. The difference isn't between uh, the God that rests on that mountain. The, the difference is the access that we have to the mountain. The people stood at a distance. Why? Because they knew that their sin, their sin made it so that it was worthy of death. They knew that if they got close and they touched that mountain of the Lord, that they would surely die. And they begged Moses, please don't let me hear that voice of God again. We know we will surely die. Church, now we stand at a mountain of joy and God whispers in our ear that he loves us. They were filled with fear the word ekphobos, terror. Can I tell you, later on in the passage, it says that we stand before God. It uses a different word for fear. It's no longer ekphobos, but now it's the word that means reverence. Now we don't have to be afraid of God. We can just be in awe of him. Hmm. So what changed? Because we're still a sinful people and the only appropriate re response for a sinful people standing before a holy judge is fear and trembling. We're still standing before a holy judge, but this time it's not fear. It's joyful assembly. Why? Because the blood of Abel is no longer speaking. It's not the loudest voice in the room anymore, right? The condemnation for our sin, it's no longer the loudest voice in the room of, anymore. And it can talk and it can talk and it can talk and it can try and speak and condemn us of our sin. It can try and condemn us to hell, death, and the grave. But the blood of Christ has spoken a better word and there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Come on, give him praise today, church. Thank you, Jesus. And I want to leave you with this. I want to give you the same warning that God gave Cain in Genesis chapter 4. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. But you must rule over it. I don't want you to misunderstand this. Doing what is right, ruling over sin in our situation, it doesn't mean that, that we try really hard. 
It doesn't mean that if we just work hard, then we can rule over sin in our life. We can make the right decisions because we can't. No matter how hard we try, we will fail. We cannot resist temptation in our own power. For us to do what is right, it just means to humble ourselves before the cross. It means to go to Jesus and to welcome him into our life, to hand over the keys to our life, hand over the wheel and say, Jesus, take it. It's to say, I, I understand I can't do it on my own anymore. I know it. I know I can't do it on my own. I need you, God. And Jesus comes into our heart. His Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. Scripture says he deposits his spirit inside of us. Man, this is going to be for free because it's not in my notes. But did you know that uh, I was we were just talking about this. I think it was with Pastor Angie. That he deposits his spirit in our heart. He doesn't just place it there. He deposits it there. Why? Because one day there will be a withdrawal that takes place. He's going to withdraw his spirit, not remove it from us, but he's going to say, hey, that person needs a piece of my spirit too. Hey, that person, he needs to feel my spirit too. To do what is right is to hand ourselves over to Christ. James 4, 7 through 8 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Through submission to Christ and through the power of his Holy Spirit at work in us, dwelling inside of us, we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. We can do what is right. We can trust in Jesus. Sin doesn't have to rule over us. But if we don't, if we don't resist, then sin will rule over us. And the blood of Abel will cry out and demand separation. The blood of Abel will be the loudest voice in the room. And we will be separated for eternity from God. Oh, Jesus, that we would submit our heart to you. Oh, Jesus, that we wouldn't turn into sin, but we would turn into you. Because when we submit ourselves to God, we let Christ rule our life instead of sin, then the blood of Abel can say whatever it wants about us. It can demand separation. It can demand judgment. It can condemn us to hell, death, and the grave. And it doesn't matter because the blood of Christ is speaking and it's speaking a better word. The blood of Christ says that we are redeemed, we are set apart, and we are welcomed back into the fold of God. Come on, church, can you say that with me? We are redeemed, we are set apart, and we are welcomed back into the fold of God.
we're gonna worship a little bit more at the end of this message. I just wanna invite you, you know, if, if you can't stay, you can't stay. But if you feel the, the, the need to come up here and you say, you know what? For a long time, I made the choice to turn into sin. I made the choice to, to ignore the warning of God. And I can feel the separation in my life. If that's you, I wanna invite you forward. As we worship, just come to the front. We'll hopefully have some people up here praying, I think. If not, nothing qualifies you. So just if you're a leader in the church, just come up and pray for someone. Come up. It's not too late. Make the decision today to turn from what you are doing and do what is right. And when you do, and you ask Jesus into your heart, separation is gone immediately and he will reunite you to the presence of God, to the family of God. He will reunite you to your purpose. He will reunite you to that soul rest that I was talking about. Come and make that decision today. Let's pray. Would you bow your head? Father, I just thank you right now, Lord. I thank you, Jesus that when we walk away from you, Lord God, that when we wander, Lord, you know our heart is prone to wander, Lord God. You bring us close, Jesus. Lord, your word says that if we will draw near to you, if we will press into you, Lord God, that you will draw near to us, Lord God. And so we submit ourselves today to you. Come on, church, say, I submit. We submit ourselves to you today, Lord God. Devil, you can get out. Devil, you can flee. We submit ourselves to you today. And we draw near, Lord God. We press in, Lord God. We declare that we will build our life on the solid rock, that we will choose to no longer walk in sin, no longer walk in that life, Lord God. But we will walk, Lord God, in your freedom. We will walk in your presence, Lord God. And we will exist in the ecosystem that we were designed to thrive in, Lord God. We declare it today. Hallelujah. We declare it today. Father, we thank you, Jesus, for your love. We thank you, Lord God, that as we wander, Lord God, your heart is still with us, that it chases after us, Lord God. Revelation says that you're standing at our door and you're knocking. We thank you for that, Jesus. We thank you for that. And we turn to you. In Jesus' name we said, amen. Amen. Come on, let's worship today. Thanks for listening. River of Life is a ministry in East Missoula, Montana. We exist for one purpose, to make Jesus famous by showing his love to the lost, broken, and hurting. For more information, you can check us out online at rolmt.com. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus today, we'd love to talk to you about what comes next. Shoot us an email at nextstep at rolmt.com. Thanks. Thanks.